0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two really bright reporters and people, and I think you're going to find this interesting. First up is Lindsay Adler. She's a senior writer for The Athletic covering the New York Yankees, and I wanted to explore with her what it's like covering a team that has the potential to make sports history. You know, as I taped this interview with Lindsay, the Yankees are on pace to top the 2001 Seattle Mariners in terms of most wins of all time. So they've got some potential history. Aaron Judge is putting up record numbers or potentially record numbers. So she has a very, very interesting job. And we get into covering a team when every game sort of feels like magnitude. And does that put pressure on you as a, as a content provider? Are people more interested in reading about a winning team versus a non-winning team? The competitiveness of that Yankee beat how front office people and players look at uh, her regarding where she works, meaning like um, how do they react to the athletic, let's say, versus like the like ESPN or or the New York Post. Get into a little bit of um, uh, women covering baseball who are under 35. Access this year and how different it is this year and, um, and some other topics. So I think you'll find that discussion interesting. She is followed by Adam Stern. He is the... Sports Business Journal, Motorsports, and Combat Sports Reporter, doing a great job for that publication. Recently broke a uh, story with John Oran on F1 agreeing to renew its rights deal with ESPN through 2025. You heard Jimmy Pitaro on this podcast last week talk about how much uh, he loved and wanted F1, and, and that agreement is now in principle. So very big news, and we get into that. F1's decision, why they wanted to stick with ESPN as opposed to go to an Amazon or an Epix or a Comcast, how ESPN might advance this product in the future, what F1's growth potential is, uh, the importance of getting a U.S. driver on that circuit for fans to root for. Talk about the explosion of F1 podcasts, which has been really, really fascinating for me to watch. There are so many out there now, even compared to like uh, six months ago. And then a little bit on NASCAR and a little bit on IndyCar as well when it comes to media stuff um again if you like this podcast uh please head to wherever you listen leave us a five-star review and a nice note that has significant meaning and that keeps that or keeps this podcast on the air all right so two guests lindsey adler of the athletic adam stern of sports business journal first up lindsey adler on the sports media podcast all right as i said at the top Uh, Lindsay Adler is the first guest of this podcast. She's the lead writer for the athletics coverage of the New York Yankees. She's covered that team now for a couple years. I think she's one of the best baseball writers in the country and a great colleague and pleased to be joined by Lindsay Adler. Welcome to the sports media podcast.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: You've covered the Yankees since 2019 or 2018. Let me make sure my Uh, math is right.
2: 2018. I I covered the Yankees and Mets in 2018 and then Yankees full time starting in twenty nineteen.
0: Okay, that's I remember that you 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 were split coverage actually that's not easy. Um, all right, so here's what this is like fascinating to me and um, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on and it's I think you're in the you're in the course of covering a historic team the Yankees as we taped this today Lindsay are fifty three and twenty they have a legit chance to break the Mariners That's a two thousand one Mariners all time record of one hundred and sixteen wins you have covered the Yankees in some form since 2018 and fully since 2019 so here's where I want to start um what is different about covering a team that can make history versus some of these other Yankee teams while good nothing like this that you've covered before
2: it's been really interesting um I said to someone with the club today, I was like, you guys do the same thing every day. You just win, win, win. Like, can you give me a new story? You just win, win, win. Um, It's an interesting mix of feeling daunting um, because it's like, so far it's kind of been a season, a a big season made up of big moments, but in a 162 game season, you know, like you can only have so many big moments um, that truly stand out, but it's like, seems like every couple of days there's like this huge you know statement win um and they just keep having these statement wins what's also interesting to me is that um you know in in 2019 the yankees had a million injuries and so they always had a million roster moves and there was like this it's this year because they've you know stayed relatively healthy um, they've just been winning games at a really big clip. There isn't as much like day-to-day stuff. You know, even even last year when Claytor Torres was at shortstop for most of the season, was you know struggling on defense and it was clearly affecting his offense. That was like a a running storyline. You know, you go to you go to post game and you ask Aaron Boone about Glaber Torres' latest error and Boone you know defends his player, but it's still a thing. Um, there are fewer just like anomaly daily story lines because no one's getting injured. Nobody's getting optioned and nobody's screwing up all the time. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, but after covering last season when the Yankees, especially their offense underperformed and they were really inconsistent and it was hard to kind of know what to write because it was very start and stop. um, It's definitely interesting to cover this season because really, it is one of those things where, you know, the the sum of the parts is, is greater than the individual parts or whatever it is. So I don't know, ask me in August or September, when I start gearing up for postseason coverage, I think I will be losing my mind with anxiety, because how do you really capture the moment with all the milestones the Yankees might meet, but um So far, we're chugging along.
0: (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up because, um, and again, I I, I wouldn't, you know, ultimately, I wouldn't equate how I felt, how another writer may feel. Because I think we all sort of deal with our own individual pressures and anxieties and things like that. That said, when I covered the Final Four, Women's Final Four for Sports Illustrated for a number of years, and UConn was at its sort of like dominant, like – legacy self i felt pressure in that final game to write a story that would i am not trying to overstate it here that that would stand the test of time to a point where that if someone read it 10 years from now like it would have meaning like i wanted to i wanted to live up to what the story was on the court because this the, this team or this this in this case this college was not like another school that just sort of did a one off so again, maybe you don't feel this right now in June and you sort of just mentioned it, maybe you feel in August, September, but like, are you feeling pressure on a on a game-by-game basis uh, because the story of the Yankees at the moment like feels like it has some magnitude compared to if you were covering, you know, the Reds this year or the Guardians?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's also interesting doing it for our outlet because the way our editorial structure is like, I'm just not going to cover everything. I'm, I don't typically write gamers. Um, it, it it really often feels like picking and choosing my spots. Um, and there are a lot of spots to pick and choose from. And I think a lot of my best work is looking at, you know, larger themes and, you know, spending more time on a story, but like the day to day is so interesting on its own. Um, and, what What's actually kind of daunting for me right now is like the sheer number of features that I'm going to need at some point I mean they're going to have a number of all stars um, there's going to be the trade deadline, and I don't think they're I don't necessarily know I mean they don't really need a huge addition, but you know there's always that then you need features on. sort of having features on on the ready for players in the postseason so that when DJ LeMay, goes off in a game three or whatever, you have something ready to run, I'm going to, you know, I may need something for Aaron judge with MVP. Um, so it's like, in addition to the daily coverage, it's trying to think out these like big moment stories that I'm going to need to prepare for. And, you know, Aaron judge is not a guy who offers up a lot of information about himself. I find him to be challenging to cover in a way that actually is like pretty rewarding. But then if you look at my author page right now, I think straight up the last five to like seven stories under my byline are exclusively about Aaron Judge, which is very funny to me. So what's actually kind of daunting is thinking about the big historical markers that I'm going to need to cover with substance while also trying to cover the day-to-day.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And we are talking about a guy who's on pace, you know, maybe 60, 61. I mean, these are, you know, forget about bonds for a second. Like that, you know, 61 in Yankee lore still has significant meaning. So, um, so I feel you on that. The, um, you know, the, the the reality of the athletic Lindsay is that um, we're judged in many different avenues there's uh there's sort of how i guess we cover what we cover how we you know our creativity on stories our collegiality with our colleagues et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. but at the end of the day there's a metric element to this like the reality is like me and you are judged by or we certainly were judged for a long time by on how many sub subscriptions we brought in um a little less on page views but that still mattered and so it's interesting to me in that you have a winning team. And I've, I've never – I haven't covered a team on a beat the way you have. Uh, I mean except for a long, long time ago in Buffalo. So are more are people more interested in reading, in your opinion, about a winning team versus a losing team? And then the second part of it is, does that show up in your metrics? Like do you find that if the Yankees are on this historic role? you're, you're finding more people are reading you or, or, or not. I actually would not know, but I'm curious to know.
2: The true privilege of covering the Yankees is that the Yankees fan base is so large and such, and there's such a high, you know, number of people who are fanatics that, um, I don't really have to think about metrics. Um, Yankees fans will read whatever you write about the Yankees. And that is, I mean, I I really cannot emphasize how much of like an editorial privilege that is in such an unstable industry. Um, Covering the Yankees, I think, is not easy for a number of reasons. Um, The players are less accessible. There's more competition. But in terms of like, can I write a story and feel that, you know, I will meet sufficient Barometers for success, like it doesn't really cross my mind. I haven't checked my metrics in a long time. I don't, the the company keeps changing what we, you know, value and prioritize. And so I'm actually trying to not follow the winds of um, editorial quantification in that way. But it's, I think what's interesting is like, not only is the Yankees audience really substantial just by nature of the team, but they kind of become a national beat. Um, And that has actually been something that's been difficult for me to sort of figure out how to balance because at the end of the day, I am almost always writing, you know, in the service of Yankees fans, but, you know, you, you can have the same essential story, And it would be written two different ways if you were writing for a Yankees audience versus, you know, a a national story that happens to be about the Yankees. And sometimes those lines get really blurry and that can be, um, that that can be confusing for me, I would say.
0: You mentioned uh, the competitiveness of the beat. I want to ask you about that. The New York itself obviously is the biggest media market in the country. So you have uh, the New York Post, uh, the Daily News. You know, these are longtime famous tabloids. Uh, I don't know if the Yankees... Uh, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know if the New York Times staffs the Yankees every day, but they're obviously... They don't. Okay, so they're... Um, but they're, you know, in theory, they're around when something of significance happens. You have a lot of the suburban papers, I assume, like uh, Bergen Record and Gannett. Um, you obviously have... Uh, Multiple television stations who are out there, including the the Yes Network. Can you give my listeners a sense of just like how competitive a beat this is? Because at least sort of in sports media circles, you know, there's always the thought that like cities like New York and Chicago and Boston or, you know, Philly are uber-competitive. Uh, compared to perhaps like, you know, if you're the one reporter in a college football town or something like that. So from your perspective, how competitive is is it to get stories and to, to get access compared to other outlets?
2: Let me preface this by saying, like, I have so much respect for everyone who is on my beat. It's interesting because we have such a wide variety of assignments. You know, there are people who just have to write constantly. Then there's me where... I turn the fire hose of attention on one subject per day. Then there's, you know, the, the daily coverage from the local papers, from the post, from Newsday, from the Daily News, like that is remarkable to me. I think the post sports section is really just sets the gold standard for sports coverage in the country. Um I miss and Davidoff, I hope he's having a lovely retirement, but I I learned so much from him. Um so You know, for me, like, I think I wind up having the opportunity, you know, in a situation where I'm sometimes looking for a different story. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of the daily nuances of covering a baseball team that I'm very much learning from my competition. Um, I think what's interesting to me is just like the, the people on the beat are so whip smart about the game about the team a lot of people have been doing it for a long time so they have you know a a very long basic knowledge um sweeney sweeney murty who covers the team for wfan like i go to him a lot because i think we sort of see the game similarly but he has really just seen so many iterations of this clubhouse um i i think what's I think, you know, the idea of, you know, the big, scary New York media. Um, I think when you kind of like have the volume of reporters we have, we just ask more questions. And so there is naturally a little bit more digging. Um, one way in which it is competitive and different from other markets is that it's it's a competition of time. Um, there are more reporters in the clubhouse. And so... You know, it really can take a long time to get to a certain player if he only shows up for 15 minutes every day. Um, the Yankees also are notoriously never around in their home clubhouse. So it um, sometimes makes that that part of the reporting process can often be kind of scary because I'll see, you know, my competitor who, let's say, I, I think that they think similarly about something i see them go talk to a player that i'm trying to get and i'm like well am i gonna have to sit here for two days and and hope that you know we don't want to write the same thing so just the just the you know the the volume of people on the beat i think really enhances the quality of it which is not to say anything about other beats but whenever when you know, when there's ten people in a room getting a stab at, you know, trying to get to the heart of a subject, I think it can be a little bit easier than if it's like two to three people constantly putting themselves out there to potentially, you know, uh, make waves with the organization to ask to ask these type of questions. So that's kind of how I see it. There's there's a little bit of insulation in that way.
0: Interesting. Shout out to Sweeney Murdy. He's very very good and has been good for a long time. Um, yeah, I, I've had um, I've had so many people from. Uh, from the like tele like well, television sort of is it <laughs> I should say legacy television, but I've had so many people on this podcast from traditional sports television places like ESPN and and Fox and you know NBC Sports et cetera, and what a, what a lot of those people have acknowledged is that players and front office personnel look at them differently from being on television. And in many ways, it gets them additional access. Uh, I don't know if respect is the right word, but player acknowledgement maybe is the way to sort of say that. So when you were coming on, uh, I really was curious about this. Do, have you, in your time with the Yankees, do front office, we'll take, we'll separate front office and player here. We'll, I want you to answer both. Do front office people look at you differently or deal with you differently working at a national outlet like the athletic even though you are covering it locally versus how they might deal with a local place like the post or the news and by the way that can be positive or negative maybe you know maybe they're giving more stuff locally or maybe they're giving you more locally but i wonder if you have sort of observed this dynamic of whether it's a brian cashman type or someone like that how do they perceive you based on where you're working
2: yeah, I mean, I think that comes up a bit. The Yankees are um, you know, the Yankees are the only organization I've covered. And Brian Cashman has been in that job for about as long as I've been alive. And I'm competing with reporters like Joel Sherman and Buster Only, who have known Brian Cashman for again, about as long as I've been alive. And so you know, I I think news comes out of the Yankees front office very rarely to begin with. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of very, very long established relationships and it doesn't surprise me when those are the people who have Yankees news, I think in terms of front office or, you know, just non-player personnel, um, the difference with the athletic, I think, and I, I hope our bosses do not hear this, but I sometimes joke that we are a trade publication for front offices. Um, I think front office people, when I approach them, probably are afraid that I'm going to write about what they're doing um, in the interest in competitive integrity and also understand that, like, I'm interested in the deep dive. So, you know, in terms of like the way baseball is changing, the way front offices are thinking, um, I think they understand that because we just have straight up so much digital real estate, I can file a story at any length. Um, We have an opportunity to be thorough. I think, you know, there's a couple stories where the Yankees would have strongly preferred I had not been thorough about the way they operate, um, which sort of as I referenced earlier with the like, you know, local coverage versus versus national coverage. Um,
3: I I think some people think that
2: the Yankees put themselves out there much more than they do. Um, they, they they make it very much so that you have to dig. Um, so that you know, it's it's just really not a very news leaky organization, which is sort of an easy place for me to start at least you know at least i know the terms of of the situation
0: all right so let's get to the players and again you know i think there are, are some professional athletes who are really really savvy about like who they're talking to and what that outlet is and um to the point where maybe they will not talk to a certain ath- uh, outlet if they don't like that outlet or maybe talk more to a certain outlet there's obviously athletes who are now working for media outlets so it gets all a little um Convoluted, But by and large, Lindsay, um are the players that you interview, like, are they aware of the athletic? And does the athletic mean anything to them in a way that I am positive? Like, if ESPN was doing a four-minute, five-minute feature on them, like, that would mean something. Or maybe back in the day, if they were going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I think they would understand, like, what that meant and probably give the writer and photographer more time. So what's it been like for you with the players— regarding where you specifically were i mean i
2: think one big misconception is that the players see you know quote the media as a monolith and they really
0: don't I agree Um,
2: i mean I, i also don't think people understand the sheer volume of time that we spend around these people um you know it's 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 not that much throughout the course of a day it's an hour for clubhouse it's standing around for batting practice it's talking to them post game but like you know, they know who we are and they know how we operate. And um, I think what also gets lost is that, you know, you go through, as a reporter, you go through like peaks and valleys in your relationships with people. It is, I think sometimes fans see, you know, some sort of tension or conflict or whatever and think that, you know, that relationship is just in eternal disrepair. But like, it's like any other relationship, like, and, and the people who are honest about like when they feel you screw up, like those are the people who I find it easy to have a good relationship with. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there's a couple of things in that, you know, our outlet means I can approach reporting in a, in a different way. Um, if I knew that, you know, like the the story I wrote this at the end of spring training about the Yankees um, really slider. Um, if I knew I had 700 words, to write that, you know, or let's say 1200 words, my reporting would have been very, very different. So, um, and if I knew that I had to also write three other stories throughout the day, my reporting process would be different. So I think there's a difference in approach based on, you know, how an outlet operates. I think also players, and, and I can really only speak for myself because I think my, um, persistent approach is sort of it's something i joke about with players like hi it's me i'm here again to bother you for 15 minutes about this very you know small scale thing um so i think they understand that you know like when i'm gonna write something my personal interest is going very very deep into something it's understanding how it works and why and they know that i'm gonna have like the real estate to really flesh it out um so I, i would say it's it's definitely different it's different based on my approach. It's, it's different based on my interests, different based on my outlet, but also, you know, there are a lot of guys who I'm sure they're like, God, I wish Lindsay would ask for two minutes of my time, ask straightforward questions and write a story for it. You know, there are some people who I think appreciate the thoroughness. And then I think there are other people where it's just like, girl, move on. Um, so it, you know, it's, it's like, it's like any other environment. Um, the relationships are all, they, they all wind up being individual.
0: What have you found, uh, regarding access this year in a, um, in a more post COVID environment? Uh, I, I, this is, you know, I, I, I covered one blue Jays game this year. I mean, covered is a, maybe a big leap. I I, I talked to Michael and David Cohen for a media related story, but it, it did seem like, uh, the reporters had more access to players this year than they did last year. So from your perspective, are you, are you getting uh, more time on the field? Um, Are you one-on-ones like, are they conducted now uh, with masks, without masks? What's it been like in terms of um, an access kind of uh, uh, play?
2: Yeah. So we have normal pregame and postgame clubhouse access back and pregame is really like for for fans, really, when you see like interesting enterprise stories, those really probably come out of pregame clubhouse access. We are still required to wear masks in the clubhouse, but really nowhere else. A player asked me the other day, like, "Are you guys tired of doing this?" And I was like, frankly, no, because the last thing I want is to like get COVID and bring down the Yankees like historic season. So, <laughs> right. whatever, uh, leave me out of it is basically my take on that. But you know, like last year we got field access back, um, for like batting practice and whatnot. And that, that did make it, that felt, that felt groundbreaking.
0: Um,
2: but it's still like a weird thing where the Yankees play their music very, very, very loudly during batting practice. So you can't hear anything and it's, you're sort of screaming at the person and, you know, that's really a time when, especially if they're on the road and they and they take batting practice second, you know, it's a lot closer to game time. And it's it's much more of a like trying to intercept guys. Um, last year, you know, like if, if a guy ran out of the field, I would sort of stop him and be like, you know, when is a good time to talk, you know, is today or maybe the start a batting practice tomorrow. But, you know, now with with clubhouse access, I think the big thing for me is also it's nice feeling like I can have private conversations in private again, because last year, there were a couple of times where, you know, I'd be watching the broadcast uh, from the press box or whatever, and I would see myself in the background of like, yes, network footage, having what was an off the record conversation with a player, or even an on the record conversation with a player, you know, it's like, it's not like you can see what is being said, but I was still just like, oh, I was, you know, this would be different in a clubhouse setting. Um, so I, I, think guys, you know, they ha- they have a little bit more time. They're they're not actively taking batting practice when they're in the clubhouse. So it's definitely changed it. And I and I hope that readers can understand or can can perceive the difference in coverage this year versus last year versus 2020 because I think overall the stories that have been coming out of this baseball season have just been remarkable and refreshing. And, um, you know, I don't think I know a single reporter who has not really jumped at the opportunity to tell interesting stories more consistently.
0: All right. A couple more here. Um, I've had obviously many, many baseball writers and reporters on this podcast. And, I think as I was thinking about it, Lindsay, of the women baseball people I've had on this podcast, I think most are, have been over 40, certainly over 35. You know, a couple, you know, I, I've always found it fascinating to talk to people like Claire Smith because I, I want a history of, like, what it was like uh, for women reporters in the in the um, 70s and 80s. I mean, it, again, it's it's incredible, as you know, like, what they went through. I mean... Not only, like, Melissa Lutke's, obviously, her, like, incredible um, suit that she brought to Supreme Court to get access, but, like, you know, Claire Smith tells these stories of, like, managers, like, not uh, allowing her in the locker room, players being total assholes, and then somebody like Steve Garvey totally stepping up and, like, coming outside to talk to her. Leslie Visser told me not too long ago that – She'd many times have to choose between like running to the bus to get a player or like, you know, she had, because she was in the locker room, she had to choose like between two bad choices to try to get players as opposed to in the locker room where you could get all these players. So things are obviously knock on wood better, but, you know, there's still a long way to go. The reason I'm filibustering here and bringing this whole preamble up is – can you give my listeners a sense because you are you're under thirty five, so you're a young baseball reporter. You may be under thirty for all I know. You're for <laughs> uh, so you for this podcast, you're a pretty young baseball reporter that I've had on. When you um, when people come through Yankee Stadium or when you've traveled, are you seeing other women like around your age or younger? Like, has the diversity in ranks, particularly um, when it comes to age, have have you seen that, and does that I don't, know, is that getting, I don't want to say is that getting better, but are we seeing 23, 24, 25-year-old women in the press box? Because that would be a really good sign compared to, I guarantee, in you know 1980s and 1990s, something like that. It would be like seeing a unicorn, basically.
2: I mean, the big thing is that like, I'm actually around women all the time, and I'm around Susan effing Waldman every single day. Um, right. And not yeah. only does Susan have <laughs> – a unique historical perspective on gender in this environment. She is an amazing source of advice and uh, encouragement for me. And the type of advice she has given me is really something that only she could give me. and I'm around Meredith Morakovitz every day, who I think is one of the yeah. best TV reporters in the fall. And she's
0: just, I'll just mention for people just didn't interrupt you, Angelique. She's a Yes Network uh, reporter for the Yankees and has been on that beat for a long time and is really, really good. Agreed. She does not get enough
2: credit for how well she does her job. Um, you know, and the, the Yankees have female media relations staffers. There's, you know, Uh, Christy Acker is also of the daily news is also on my beat. Marley Rivera of ESPN is around. Like there are a lot of women around Um, there are, you know, I feel a number of women around my age covering beats. Um, Disha Tosar of the daily news covers the Mets. Um, And I, I mean, honestly there's, there's too many women covering baseball for me to list them all at this point, which is so nice. There's, actually too many women covering baseball for me even to know them all uh which is exciting yeah look I, i know a lot of them and you know it's sort of the you know i would i would consider pretty much all of them casual acquaintances but you know like i don't know them all which is great but um there's like there's there's one reporter, um, Kennedy Landry, who covers the Texas Rangers for MLB.com, and she's young, and it makes me feel very old. And she's got different cultural references, and she's like cool, and she's really good at her job. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is painful. But actually, what is more interesting to me than just the you know gender classification of Beat writers in that age range um, is really just the willingness of people to be on a baseball beat at all, um, given the variety of options that there are in digital media. Obviously, it's a yeah. contracting industry. So the idea of options is sort of a fraught thing. But like, you know, I started my job at BuzzFeed News. I was covering sports generally. I went to Deadspin, I was covering, you know, mostly baseball generally. Um the idea of grinding it out on a beat when you could theoretically write features for a digital outlet is really unappealing to a lot of people and understandably. And I am such a huge beat evangelist. Now I think there is nothing in the world like baseball beat reporting. Um, I think it makes some of the best reporters in the world. Um, And I just, I'm really happy whenever I see a person, you know, who probably had other options elect to be on a baseball beat because I just think it's, it's building a really great foundation. And for me, I didn't, I didn't start covering the Yankees and Mets until I was nearly 28, which is, you know, not late in my career by any means, but like, to, to have these experiences at like 22, 23, um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely envious of that. And, and, and it is nice to see that a lot of the younger generation of people, uh, covering the sport are women or people of color, or it's just, it's just, it's just a different field than, you know, it would have been 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. God, I, it is a hard job. God bless you. This is not one I would want. Um, so I'm glad that they are, people like you do it all right two more here um you're growing up in new york um the names of the people who covered the yankees and the mets like they were there forever you mentioned uh joel sherman who i feel like the guy feels like he's been covering the yankees since you know i, I can't even, you know <laughs> since the fdr administration you know george king was there for a long time at the post um, you mentioned Ken Davidoff, who um, who is uh, retired from uh, the day-to-day baseball cycle. You know, I remember my mom would get like the New York Times when The Times would sort of staff the Yankees, and it was the same bylines over and over again. And you know these people obviously became expert at their craft, experts um, on the beat. So I'm curious for you, um now that you've had, uh, you know you're sort of four years in, do you and you love beat writing, as you said, are you someone who would love to like do this for the next 15, 20, 25 years where we become sort of like the dean of the beat or do you think you know, a couple years from now you're going to want a a different challenge because it's kind of interesting in that like the more you stay on this beat, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, like the better you're going to get, the the more people who I think are going to read you for your expertise and and knowledge of the organization. So it does build upon itself and in theory, it would make you more valuable as an employee to any place that's interested in the Yankees. At the same time, I don't know if you can do this 15, 18, 19 years in a row going to the ballpark. It's Baseball writers have a very, very hard time, I think, in terms of having personal relationships away from their job. It's just so it's just all encompassing. So how do you look at it? I realize, again, you're very young, and so you know whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But like this is a real sort of calculus you make because the longer you're on the speed, the better you're going to be on the speed. Um, but then you have to think like, do I want to be 52 years old in my, you know, 27th year covering the Yankees? How do you look at it?
2: Um, I, I don't think I have the creativity to be on a B for a very extended period of time. Um, there's different players, there's different circumstances, but a lot of baseball is formulaic and I'm Um, sort of a -a wackadoodle in terms of my planning for a season in trying to address kind of, you know, the the types of stories that I've learned how to accomplish, achieve, and in some ways, master to the point of boredom, and how to kind of take steps beyond that. Um, I think reading John McPhee's draft number four was really influential to me. He's a very, he's a very remarkably organized writer, which I am absolutely not but seeing the way that he would blueprint out um the idea of story concepts um and and how we wanted to achieve those was really eye-opening to me even if it mostly gets sticks in my head is this jumbled adhd you know you're playing a game of boggle basically up there um but right sort of similar concepts and so you know I, i think there's there, there's an infinite number of things you can learn on a baseball beat. And I'm not sure how far my creativity will take me. It's also, it is just a very, very taxing schedule. Um, and the pandemic kind of changed my priorities in that way. You know, I mean, I wasn't at the ballpark all day. What What's actually weird is that like, I started going back to, quote unquote, the office um, on July 4th, 2020, uh, when the Yankees started summer camp. Actually, it was July 3rd, July 3rd, 2020, when the Yankees started summer camp. Um, But, you know, with Zoom and, you know, not traveling, um, I had a lot more free time. And so I really, uh, I started to have a social life again, I would go to parties and people would say, I haven't seen you in four years, which was lovely, but also <laughs> a little bit painful. Um, and right. I, I think also as my experience on the beat has changed and I feel that it doesn't take as much of a grind to execute certain types of you know stories or processes, um, priori- prioritizing my personal life, I feel has been... Uh, a bit of an emphasis for me, um, which kind of at this point right now just kind of means that I work hard and then I play hard and then I look at a pile of laundry and I'm like, "Girl, when is this getting done?" Um, <laughs> so it's it, it's really like a tough tough thing, and I'm I'm really impressed by the people who can really stick it out for, for a very long time. Um, not just because of the like physical and emotional grind of it, but also just like it's 162 games at minimum every single year. Um, it's, it's just a lot of reporting and story copy and a lot of the same themes you see over and over again. So um, the people who are able to find, you know, inventive ways to cover each season are really, um, inspiring to me, I would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's not, it hasn't been a beat reporter for a long time, but when your description here, it it really reminds me of Tom Verducci who just sort of maintains the love of, or his love of baseball Mm -hmm. and comes up with inventive and new ways to do it. At the same time, he's not at the ballpark every Mm -hmm. day anymore. Um, and some of he does TV in addition to his SI stuff, but, uh, Yeah, that's a great blueprint, I think, for a long success in baseball, but it is, man, that 162 is a grind. Um, All right, the last one I want to ask you about is um, the sports world, as you saw, um, reacted to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. We saw a lot of individual athletes um, on their own social media feeds Make statements, whether that's, um, you know, LeBron James or Carl Anthony Towns, um, uh, Megan Rapino obviously got a lot of attention for her comments. Kyler Murray. Um, you can forgive me if someone from baseball did or didn't do anything. I didn't see it. But the reason I'm sort of bringing this up is the NBA, Lindsay, as I'm sure you saw, issued a joint statement with the WNBA, sort of came out as a league with a statement. The WSLPA came out with a statement as a league. As of today, um, I think the three major sports, not the NBA in this country, the NHL, MLB, and NFL have not. So I want to focus with you on MLB because obviously it's the sport you cover. One, do you expect them to do so? And two, should there be an expectation— that they would do so. My last thing, and again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Mob is a business entity, obviously is in all over the country. They're in red states in addition to blue states. They have a real sort of business aspect to this. And I'm sure that factors in at the same time. I'm now speaking only for Richard Deitch, not any of Richard Deitch's employers. I don't think it's a big thing to say that as an organization, we advocate for gender and health equality we advocate for our employees to have access to reproductive health care. That's just my personal opinion. I don't think that's going so far, like, organizationally. How do you see it? So it's really twofold for you. One, do you expect MLB to do anything? And maybe the second thing, and it's maybe more interesting question, is should should they? Are they required to do anything? Or is any sports organization required to speak right now?
2: I wouldn't. I mean, at this point, I wouldn't expect you know, something like a statement from Major League Baseball, I think we've seen a number of corporations, they, they will, you know, pay to provide out-of-state travel for employees who may seek an abortion or something like that. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if we heard something like that from Major League Baseball, um, but it is a very conservative sport made up of
3: conservative players, but my...
2: And, and and I really respect the sports people um, who have been putting themselves out there on this. I mean, I think Dodgers pitcher David Price yesterday tweeted something like "their body, their choice." Period, and that is a rare comment from a male athlete, especially in a conservative sport. You know, I think we've seen a number of guys from the NBA say it, and it's you know not even to get into the the professional women's athletes who consistently put themselves out there on these issues. Um,
3: Where I fall on this, I think, will indicate a massive amount of
2: cynicism on my part, but I think it's just a different cultural and political climate than it was in 2020 when there was really this um, feeling that sports leagues and teams should be addressing the idea of, you know, the issues with police brutality and racial inequality. Um, I think in the two years since then, we have learned a lot about public pressure and
3: corporate influence on
2: sensitive political topics. And I think what we've learned is that it does very little. Um, I think... The United States government is structured in a way that I don't really understand how um, the idea of consequence could even really return to the to that realm. Um, these are elected or unelected people who are making decisions on behalf of the country, and I don't necessarily know what Major League Baseball saying this would do. I think I think what it may do would be to Show to their female employees and their you know male employees as well um, you know we we have your back, we stand for you. it's in a sense to me it would be more of an external version of an internal communications um, situation, but I'm
3: very cynical about the influence of public um
2: public support for various causes given the structure of our government. So I I felt pretty ambivalent to it, you know, when MLB didn't release a statement. Um, I don't know that they should, I don't know that they shouldn't, um, but it's, it feels to me definitely different than 2020. And just, you know, sort of on a, on a personal note, I feel that,
3: um,
2: you know especially on a subject like abortion people feel the way they feel um i feel the way i feel and hard to imagine anyone could move me off of those feelings i don't imagine that you know my perspective could move anyone off of their feelings if they are different than mine so um in terms of sort of the silo effect of of discussion about this stuff um I don't, I don't think MLB not saying something in this climate really moves the needle for me either way.
0: Lindsay Adler is, I don't even know what your title is. I'm just calling you the lead writer for the Yankees. Do you, do you prefer something better?
2: It's like a senior writer comma Yankees. I don't know. Yankees beat writer. Yankees beat writer, Lindsey Adler.
0: It, you know, back in the day at Sports Illustrated, people were obsessed with the senior writer title. So, I mean, it is a cool title, but like, uh, I don't know. I've, I've got to come up with a better, better, better title. I mean, again, you're my, you're my, Yankee source. So, but that doesn't seem like a good title either. Anyway, Lindsay Adler is a senior writer for the Athletic, covering the New York Yankees. Um, check out her work. She uh, not only is she really, really good at what she does. Like the Yankees are just they're an annoyingly great team this year. And living in Toronto, man, I talk to a lot of Blue Jays fans. They're just so annoyed with the Yankees because they, like, it seems like every time we have watched them, like, they're winning in the ninth inning, like, after losing, like, earlier. Uh, I mean, they were being no hit by the Astros the other day, and then they came back to win on an Aaron Judge walk-off. So, Lindsay, listen, thank you for this. Uh, I really appreciate your time, your insight. Keep up the great work, and uh, I think it's going to be an amazing year for you. Um, yeah, I, I would be very surprised if your team's on in the – the AL championship at a minimum. And I just think you're, I think you're in for like a, a really fascinating, like next couple of months that people are really, really going to care about. And as a writer, that's really all you can ask for. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast. All right. We bring in Adam Stern. He is sports business journals, motorsports and combat sports reporter. Fresh off a very big scoop involving F1, and if you are not familiar with that scoop, F1 renewing with ESPN for their U.S. media rights through 2025. Contract not signed yet, but all indications are that uh, F1 has re-upped with ESPN. That's Adam's Story with a... uh, a reporter named John O'Ran. That, is that a new reporter, Adam, at the Sports Business Journal? That's a, that's not a name I'm familiar with. I have to catch up on uh, his work. And pleased to be joined, though, by Adam Stern of Sports Business Journal. How are you, Adam?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having
0: me on. Yeah, You never heard of him, have you? No. It, I mean, again, I like the fact that you're bringing in this young, new talent uh, and giving them a <laughs> shot in the in the space that's exciting for me. Um, all right, yeah. so let's get to this. Let's discuss the uh, the story that you have with Oran. You know, Jimmy Pitaro was on this podcast and not too rec- not too long ago, uh, <laughs> foreshadowing what you guys broke about how much he loved F one. Talked about going to Miami, and obviously, um, he was pretty wowed by the whole production. Burke Magnus was on this podcast, uh, made very explicitly clear that we want to continue with F1. Um, we think we've done a great job for them. We like them as a partner. We see it as a growth property. They, according to your reporting, um, have got this done at least in principle, if not by contract. So let me let me start here with you, Adam. Why did F1 agree to renew its right deal with ESPN? I want to look at it from the F1 uh, position as opposed to ESPN.
1: Well, when you look at, you know, F1's growth story, which is obviously remarkable, you know, now that they've gotten and secured a 1500% increase in their media rights from three years ago, which is it's almost unheard of. When you look at that growth story, um, most people would probably attribute the number one factor to Netflix and the Drive to Survive series. But I think most people would also probably say, you know, particularly people in sports business who really study it, that ESPN is a close second um, yet you, there's no doubt that netflix you know and what happened with drive to survive and the way the pandemic happened with tens of millions of people in america and around the world sitting at home and looking for something to watch and stumbling upon this series and now newly getting in the series i mean the way that happened was just amazing and um you know the serendipity was incredible for f1 but at the same time you know, they also were on this huge platform, the biggest platform in American sports, you know, for media and ESPN. And ESPN has made the races very accessible. Furthermore, as, as everyone knows, um, you know, they did the first ever race when they got the rights again, I think in what was it, 2018, and they tried to do commercials and it didn't go well, um, And or 2019, and it didn't go well. And they immediately switched, you know, the next race two weeks later to commercial-free which has made the races, you know, much more watchable. Um, It's really helped people get into them. So I think from F1's perspective, you know, they definitely love to see that they had, you know, Amazon, Netflix, and Comcast, once again, back at the table, Amazon and Netflix being new, you know, they used to be partners with NBC Sports. Um, They love to see that. But at the end of the day, I think they realize that ESPN still has such gigantic reach. It's certainly interesting, you know, given that, this comes like a week after MLS's deal announced with Apple, where they're putting the majority of their, you know, inventory now on a digital platform. Liberty Media and, and F1 have kind of gone the other direction. And, and they're kind of more like NFL, it seems like, where for the next couple of years, at least, they still want to have the majority of their content on linear TV, at least. So um, I think really they, they gave credit to where it was due to an extent to ESPN and that influenced them deciding to renew.
0: Yeah, interesting. There's a lot there. And um, you're absolutely correct. The contrast in those two deals is really interesting. Um, F1 is coming from a bigger viewership place. So to me, like a linear partner or a legacy media partner, I think would be more important to them because, you know, there is a big difference going from, let's say, a million to two million as opposed to MLS. You know, you're already sitting at 250,000, 200,000 linear viewers. It didn't look like there'd be. Uh, there'd be growth there. Something that's interesting. I want, I'll get to drive to survive in a seven. But something that was interesting to me is, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Usually with this stuff, Adam, like, like at the end of the day, whoever bids the most usually gets rights deals. Like that's like the reality of all these businesses. It's very rare when a when a league or an org opts to go not to the highest bidder. But in this case, based on your reporting. There was a higher bidder, right? Than than ESPN and F1 opted to stay with a relationship that they thought helped grow the sport as opposed to go to a new bidder which was gonna give more money.
1: Yeah, that definitely is very rare. You're exactly right about that. You know, some of this is is um, you know helped out by John O'Ran's reporting. So, you know, I'd love to, you know, eventually get some further details of one way or the other from from him as well as as far as exactly how much Amazon went over. Um, but you know. I don't think it was so much over that it was, you know, made ESPN's bid uncompetitive. I mean, you know, ESPN bidding 75 to 90, Amazon was probably, you know, somewhere around 100. Um, So I think, and then also, you know, the fact that Amazon wanted to sub-license it to a broadcaster, um, you know, from a linear perspective, some of the races, I mean, I think that started to get a little bit complicated as well. I mean, what some of the races therefore have to go back to ESPN, that starts to get a little bit complicated. And of course, we know that, Disney, ESPN, ABC has a has a has a thriving streaming product themselves with ESPN Plus, and it looks like a couple races are going to be able to go on that. So you know, F1 and Liberty Media are going to get to experiment a little bit with this deal. Looks like, Um, and and obviously ESPN will as well to see how it responds on on a digital platform. But certainly rare to have um, the winning bidder be you know someone who didn't put the most money forward. At the same time, it's ESPN.
0: So this is interesting to me because I'm sure you have uh, faced this as I have. There is no doubt that, I I don't think you can argue against it, that the success of Drive to Survive, or like you really sort of just spelled it out, the fact that so many people, I I might argue millions of people, discovered this program during the pandemic absolutely led to an increased uh, interest in Formula One. Like, there's no doubt about that. I think you can even sort of prove it metrically. There's also no doubt that ESPN did a great job with this property. They they treated it first class. They 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 put it on in a uh, in a window that people could access it. They they were smart about when it came to commercials. They respected the I think they picked up uh, Sky, so like they respected that like this other place had done it before. So unquestionably. That's true as well. What's really interesting though, Adam, and I imagine you faced this too, is every ESPN person I talk to, they really go out of their way to like let you know that, yeah, we love Netflix, but like we think that we've grown this product and we think we're responsible for this. To me, it's both. I might anecdotally think that it's more Drive to Survive than ESPN, but this is one of these rare things where like, Two different forces, I think, have helped popularize the sport in the United States, at least at the moment.
1: No, I totally agree. I think again, I think Drive to Survive was this huge spark, but then ESPN ABC put the property on a silver platter for sports fans, and that can't, you know, just be overstated or, or undervalued. You know, that's a really, really big deal. And so, um, you know, like you said. Right when they picked up the property, Um, it was, you know, when they initially did it, you know, Liberty Media had just bought uh, F1 in 2016. They were looking to try and, you know, shake things up. Uh, NBC had had the property for a couple of years. They went on a on a whim with ESPN basically for free the first year. And then I believe they renewed for a second year um, for five million. You know, the second year they renewed for three more years and it was at the five million dollar rate. Um, So, you know, really they were betting on themselves that, hey, eventually uh, this will be worth something. But at the time they were really taking a gamble on themselves at the same time, you know, ESPN was taking a gamble too. Um, You know, they were, you know, not big in motorsports anymore. They had dropped NASCAR. Um, You know, they were giving this, like you said, some pretty good airtime granted in a a slot when there's not a lot of stick of ball sports going on in America. That's what's good about is a lot of these races are overseas early on in the morning. Um, So, It's just been, it's worked out for everybody. It's been incredible serendipity, Um, not just the pandemic in terms of, obviously no one wanted the pandemic, but it, you know, it happened forced people to sit at home. But then also last season was pretty much the best season F1 has had in literally decades, not just by opinion, but even by statistics. Um, And so, you know, you finally build up this huge mass of new fans and all of a sudden you have the best racing season you've had, you know, in there's entertainment wise, excitement wise in decades it just really was an amazing crescendo now now they got to keep it going. so that's that's an interesting thing as well.
0: yeah, let's talk about that. And again, full marks to Burke Magnus. that stroke uh, to cut that first deal. that's an all timer right there. And I think I'm sure you know ESPN has helped in some ways. Sean Bratch is, one of their really ex top guys, was a part of that uh, that f one group for a while. but you know, full marks to them. That's that's a, That's an and all-time Ratch deal. set
1: up the drive to survive. So he uh, correct. Yeah, I
0: mean that. Yeah, I'm sure that guy um, is uh, sitting in his second house in Bora Bora somewhere. <laughs> so I don't think there's any doubt about that. All right. So one of the obviously interesting things now about F1 is like, okay, what's the growth potential in the U.S. as we head forward? And to me, and again, I'm no F1 expert nor F1 genius, but it seems clear to me, Adam, and I wonder if you agree that the next growth area has to be getting a u.s driver or a u.s team sort of part of this series because the one thing that the u.s fan does not have at the moment is they don't have a u.s driver to root for
1: that's a great point richard and and furthermore i would i would say you're right Um, they you know you we probably need or, or america probably needs a u.s um an american driver to root for an american team i mean you have um You do have Haas, but they're a little bit of a complicated situation. Literally, just a year ago, they had the Russian flag on their car. Um, So, I mean, it's a, you know, definitely that would help. But the one thing I'll say is that American sports fans, like, they'll give something a try, but they want to be, you know, entertained. And so, you know, like I said, last year was pretty much the best season F1 has had entertainment-wise in quite a long while. And furthermore, there had been seasons before in recent years that were not that good. Um, part of the reason Lewis Hamilton has so many championships is because he dominated a lot of seasons and really wasn't that exciting. Finally, last year, he had a little bit of competition from a different team uh, and, it, and it made it absolutely thrilling. This year has not been quite as exciting yet. Um, you know, Mercedes has been um, uh, not in the title picture, and then you've had Red Bull and Ferrari going at it. But a lot of times in the races, like one of the two teams has had issues where one of their drivers had to drop out. And so, even or I, I even saw a tweet um, the most recent race, I forget who it was, but someone who works for Barstool sports tweeted like, okay, are we over this yet? Are we over F1 yet? And so you're just starting to see some early signs of people saying like, Hey, you know, this is getting a little bit boring for me or people who didn't really like F1 taking over their Twitter timeline saying like, Hey guys, like this is not exciting, let's move on. So you're exactly right. F1 does have to keep it going and they're going to have to keep their product very exciting, which is, you know, not easy. Um, Again, last season was the best season they had in some time. So it's, it's not easy to make great racing happen all the time. And, and furthermore, like you said, um, adding an American driver is something that I think could, could unlock some value and some fandom for them. Of course, next year, they also add the third race in Las Vegas. Um, so now you have six races in North America um, or, or in the Americas. So, um, you know, they have a couple different levers left to pull. But I, I think obviously adding an American driver would be an important one.
0: Yeah, listen, you know, you know this from covering NASCAR at you don't really, I mean, obviously what's going to happen is going to happen, but you don't want Max Verstappen to win six in a row. Like that's not going to grow the sport in the state. So you have to hope that it's competitive. And last year you're right. I mean, you couldn't have scripted a better ending. Race, you know, comes down to the last race. You have controversy essentially on the last couple of laps. You have cameras that are basically filming both of these teams. Probably will never happen again. So um, you know, we'll see what happens on the track. One of the things, Adam, that's fascinating to me, and this is one I, I don't know if it's going to continue. I'm actually really interested in this, but we have seen in the last six months an explosion of F1 podcasts. I don't know if you noticed this, but like major podcasters like The Ringer have jumped on this, and then there are independents everywhere. Uh, while the Apple charts are notoriously not particularly accurate when it comes to podcast rankings i you do look and you see f1 podcasting now you know uh like dotted all across the top 100 and the top 200 that's a very new phenomenon so two questions here one have you noticed this and two like is this sustainable or is this like uh you know, the hundred NFT podcast that came out last year, I'm kind of fascinated to see what's going to happen
1: here. No, I've definitely noticed it. Um, it's been, uh, you know, very noticeable, um, how much, you know, new, you know, media companies are now investing in F1. Like you said that, you know, not just ESPN, but digital media companies, things like that. I, I remember, you know, um, one of the things that stands out most to me is that, you know, not, and, and I went on his show, uh, during the Miami race, but, um, Kevin Clark, of course, now hosts a, an F1 podcast with The Ringer, and they added that show and at the same time you know, pretty much got rid of their MLB podcast. So to me, that was absolutely remarkable that they would be adding an F1 podcast at the same time they're getting rid of you know, a podcast about America's pastime. Um, so you know, it definitely is wild right now. I mean, it's crazy to see these things. Um, I think Metal Ark Media Media and, and DraftKings just announced a new one a week or two ago so they're, they're still rolling out. Um, is it sustainable? It's a great question. I mean, probably not all of them, um, but you know there's going to be some. I mean, even like when you talk about the top charts, I mean, when F1 season started, I think there was like eight in the top 100, but like three of them were from F1 themselves, like their own digital media channel. I mean, those are, you know, and so the, a lot of those have global listenership. Um, and so, you know they're going to continue to be popular but are you know is it sustainable to have like six in america you know i'm not sure uh but i'm sure you know it's great for the sport right now to have this much coverage so you know if you're liberty media um if you're f1 you're absolutely loving it i remember at the f1 race you know listening to greg mafai the ceo of liberty media speak and he mentioned like how much coverage it was getting how much coverage miami was getting so they're definitely paying attention. They're definitely loving it from their perspective. Uh whether it's sustainable to have them on the long term, that's a great question.
0: Yeah. So two it's interesting you say that. So a couple of things there. One, the global reach of, of audio would indicate that maybe it has a little longer shelf life than you might expect, because it's not just going to be a domestic audience. Like there could be somebody in France who wants to listen to like Kevin Clark's ringer. Um, podcast the other thing that I noticed Adam and again you would um, have a sense of this probably just from um, having covered the sport I imagine at least in the U.S. in person the you can get some of these people easier than you can some other sports like I just even know in the in the outlet that I worked for in Toronto Sportsnet like we could I mean with the exception of like Lewis Hamilton you could almost get any driver like they were desperate to come on in North America, they they wanted those markets. So, I would think at least still the 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 F one structure is set up right where if it's an American media outlet that's looking to pay attention to this, I feel like they'll get the access they want.
1: That, that's a great point. Motorsports as a sport, from what I've seen, relative to other sports, is very much structured towards like appreciating the media. Um, it's it's because motorsports is probably a niche. And so, um, you know, they very much, you know, are, are engaged with media trying to make their drivers available, like you said. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, furthermore, these F1 teams, for example, um, and F1 as a league itself and as a property itself has been trying to grow like this in America for literally decades. And so, um, you know, now they're adding tons of sponsors. I mean, like half of the grid at this point is American companies. It's absolutely insane. Um, like McLaren Racing, for example, which is run by the American Zach Brown, very much is positioning itself as an American team to to a certain degree. I mean, they're still an English car company, but they're you know they've got an IndyCar team. Um, you know, they've got again a lot of American sponsors. They're doing a lot here, so um, you know they want to make their drivers available. They want to do everything they can to help the sport grow because it's helping them. They're growing their revenues. Their franchise values are growing insanely uh, you know, they passed their most recent governing agreement in 2020. And at the time they said, if any new teams want to come in, uh, you got to pay at least 200, you got to pay $200 million as a franchise fee. Now they're not letting that happen anymore. Now there's all sorts of controversy, like Andretti's trying to come in, but all the F1 teams are saying, we don't want to split up the pie. And if you want to come in now, you got to pay like 400 or 600 million. Cause you know, our franchise values have doubled or tripled. So, um, you know, all this growth in America has significantly helped their businesses. So, yeah, they want to make their drivers available for podcasts or interviews, things like that, because it's helping them significantly.
0: All right. A couple more here and then I will let you go. Where do you um, see NASCAR's viewership heading forward?
1: Um, You know, NASCAR is in an interesting place. I mean, you know, kind of talking and piggybacking off F1. I mean, a lot of these properties like NASCAR and IndyCar are kind of Looking from afar right now about, hey, like, can this be a renaissance for America? Can this be uh, for motorsports in America? Can this be a rising tide lifts all boats sort of situation? So, um, you know, they're, they're kind of looking from afar about, hey, can, you know, will this help us? You know, that now that racing is kind of cool again in a way that maybe it hasn't been since the early 2000s. Um, through the first half of the season for NASCAR in 2022, they averaged 3.7 million viewers. It was up six to eight percent, depending on how you count it. Um. But they also had a very advantageous comparison because last year's Daytona 500 was rained out. So it was very much expected that they'd be up. And in fact, originally earlier on this season, they were up double digits and it kind of eroded a little bit. Um, they did really well on the broadcast races on Fox, not as well on FS1 races. The FS1 races were backloaded towards the end of Fox's schedule. So it kind of eroded down to about a 6 to 8% increase in the end. Still in this day and age, particularly given hut levels are down, things like that. Um, you know, Fox and NASCAR both say they're very happy with how they performed. And you know, look, 3.7 million viewers on average um, every weekend from you know, in the you know, in this case, mid February through June, it's decent. It's very solid numbers compared to other sports. Like you said, like MLS. I mean, they have a lot of tonnage, but their games are averaging mid, you know, uh, six figures. You know, so. So I think, you know, NASCAR still is in a pretty good place. Um, They go to the formal media rights talks next year. They've been having informal talks for some time, trying to change up their schedules, make the broadcasters um, kind of happy with what they're doing. It'll be interesting to see how much ESPN uh, becomes a factor in these talks. So a very interesting and and important time for NASCAR. Right now they're getting paid uh, $820 million annually for their media rights. So um everyone's keeping an eye on, on what that number will be. Will they be able to get a, a similar number or higher or is it going to go lower? So a uh, really interesting time for NASCAR with formal media rights talk starting next year.
0: Can I make the presumption that na- – and again, you are much closer to this than I am, uh, significantly closer. So this is just me ballparking here. But given NASCAR as a sport, I cannot see them interested in putting their premium inventory – Behind a paywall, the way MLS did. I feel like line- linear television is massively important to that sport. Correct,
1: hundred percent. And again, that's almost backed up by their range over the first half of the season. They didn't do as well on FS1 races year over year uh, versus Fox. Like they have a viewers they have a viewership that's very much like broadcast linear TV centric. Yeah. So. Uh, De- and demos are older, right? Yeah, they're, they're older. Yeah. And they're trying to work on that. But, you know, that that is where – look, they still have – they're still doing usually like three times the viewership of F1. But the yes. problem for NASCAR is, is that they're almost tied on 18 to 49. So NASCAR right. is racking up the viewers over 50. But 18 to 49, they're very close.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's uh, – yeah, that's one sport. I mean, again, 10 years from now, maybe we're talking a different story. But the makeup – The demo makeup of NASCAR suggests that there's no chance. I don't even think a little portion of that contract goes to an Apple or an Amazon. We'll see if I'm wrong, but that would be my guess. And then the last one for me, again, I can't say I watch a lot of IndyCar, but I did – I think probably I read this from you. I did find it interesting that they're they're trying to develop a drive to survive – show uh one they clearly see the the success of netflix and formula one and two you know this like a lot of the television business is a copycat business you know the mannings have massive success and you're going to see everybody try to do their own manning cast what is interesting about this to me is i do think given that sport given the sexiness uh if an IndyCar organization would allow really uh you know really really great access for the cameras behind the scenes like that could be interesting to me how do you see it
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, I, like, you know, like you said, TV, the best ideas are stolen. And so, I mean, look, all these, you know, US based racing series, their executives and their owners are sitting around saying, hey, guys, Formula One just created this new docuseries. And now they're growing leaps and bounds. What are we doing? You know, so they're kind of entertainment content divisions are under pressure right now to, to produce something. NASCAR is actually doing one as well. It hasn't gotten a lot of press yet, but it's actually official. Um, but it's going to be with NBC Sports. I believe it's going to air later this year on USA Network. So it's not going to be quite the same thing because it's not, not going to be video on demand. IndyCar is trying to do the same thing. Like you said, their deal's not done yet. Um, but, yeah, they got to try something. You know, you got to look, look at what it's done for F1. So. Um. Look, nobody. You know, F1 is a very unique property. They're the, they're a globe trotting series. They have teams like Ferrari and McLaren and Mercedes in it. All these really sexy brands. It's always been this bastion of wealth and opulence for decades. So, F1 is a very unique story. Um, I don't think anyone really can get fifteen hundred percent increase in their media rights values in three years like they did. Also, they're starting from a low base, but they're a very unique property. So. You know, IndyCar is going to have to kind of be the American version. That's, going to, that's what they're going to be the best at. They can kind of go all on, hey, we are the American version of F1. And also, there are some former F1 drivers who are now in IndyCar. Um, McLaren has a team in IndyCar. So if they can play certain things like that up and try and draft off of F1 success, maybe the, it can be a rising tide lifts all boats situation. But we'll, we'll have to
0: see. It could be a zero-sum game. I will say this, and I'll, uh, you're welcome to sort of follow my comments. i just sort of leave my audience with this. One of the best marketing tools all these racing series have is if you can see races in person. Um, when I was at Sports Illustrated, I was fortunate to have an assignment where I went to six NASCAR races over eight weeks. We did this gigantic um, like uh, NASCAR fan poll where I got to walk through all the RVs. Um, all these races and interview, I've interviewed literally thousands of NASCAR fans about the sport, but then I was able to stick around and watch the race. It's unbelievable to see live, like, uh, especially if you can go near the pits or walk near the pits, like the, the skill level of all this stuff is incredible. The other thing I learned, and it was very good for me as a New Yorker to do this, like whatever you think your stereotype is of who's watching this or who is a fan of this is wrong. Um, you know, I met PhDs in the same way I met like blue collar, like mechanics, um, so, Adam, it's interesting, like, it's not necessarily easy to get to because it's not everywhere in the U.S., but it really is one of these sports. Like, motorsports is, like, one of these categories where you actually, if you see it live, you have so much better appreciation for what you see on TV.
1: Yeah, it's it's very visceral. Um, you know, the, the senses are definitely up. You know, you're smelling barbecues. You're smelling motor oil. You name it. But another thing as well is that sometimes flat out, it's just hard to show speed properly on TV sometimes you can see a car going on even 230 miles per hour. And you're like, Oh, that thing's going slowly. So that also is another factor as well. That, that really plays into it. Um, You're exactly right as well. Like NASCAR is traditionally raced in, you know, far flung places. And they're trying to change that. They raced this year at the LA Coliseum for the first time. They're looking at adding a Chicago street race next year. So they're trying to bring their product more to the people um, to give people, like you said, to give people a chance who want to taste it, but don't want to travel hours and hours away uh, uh, the opportunity to do so. So, um, you're exactly right. You know, NASCAR executives would be the first to agree with you. They totally agree with you. They think, hey, look, if we can just get someone out to a race, we'll make them fans for life. They, they, they truly believe that. So, um, you, but you're definitely onto something. It, it is an experience for sure. And by the way, I mean, a lot of these events are incredible. I mean, you talk about the Indy 500. Last month, they had 325,000 people there in one day, not over the weekend, 325,000 people there in one day. So these events can be incredible to experience for sure.
0: Yeah, uh, you know what? I remember I one of the races I went to was Sonoma, and I saw people like had their lawn chairs out, like they were drinking wine watching the race. I'm like, motherfucker, these guys are drinking <laughs> wine watching NASCAR. That's one of the most it's like not gorgeous something I
1: expected. Sure. So, you know, yeah, sponsors yeah, yeah. and it teams was, love that assignment, and people in the industry love that assignment when they get sent out to Sonoma.
0: Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, all right, Adam Stern, follow his work on uh, at Sports Business Journal. Uh, he's on Twitter. So, you can give your Twitter handle here, Adam, so people uh, who can. Uh, who are on that service can check you out yeah
1: absolutely sportsbusinessjournal.com you send also on Twitter at A underscore S12
0: Adam listen man you're doing excellent work uh, the motorsports um, beat is just it's always been interesting to me it has been ever since the, I did a little, my little trip there I love the guys who I work with uh, Jordan Bianchi and uh, Jeff Gluck and uh, and I've really come to appreciate uh, uh, your work we all know who the brains of the operation was on that F1 scoop uh, Don't don't, don't <laughs>
1: None. Don't, don't, um, big, don't, big don't, don't of, um, sell yourself short Big credit to John around that one Also a huge fan of, of Jeff and Jordan as well The Athletic has a great uh, motorsports team But um, this was fun, thank you so much for having me on
0: Alright, back in the studio My thanks to Lindsay Adler and Adam Stern For their insight and time uh, Those were interesting conversations to me I hope you guys liked it I, I really enjoyed both of them Very different subjects But uh, two great guests And absolutely follow them and, and read their work They're really talented at what they do If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media Richard Deitch archives page. Got some good ones over the last couple weeks. ESPN chairman Jimmy Pitaro, 63 minutes straight, with, you know, arguably the most powerful person in sports, certainly the most powerful person in sports media, I would say. Um, Prior to that, a conversation with Michael McCann, a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter at Sportico. If you like the intersection of law and sports, uh, he's the best. And we did a lot of um, sort of interesting topics that are out there that intersection always exists prior to that ESPN NHL reporter Emily Kaplan on covering the NHL from ice level before that Haley Rosen founder and CEO of just women's sports um did a couple of uh I would say non-sports media podcasts but just a couple I wanted to do Edward Keenan on covering the United States uh foreign perspective he's the Toronto Star Washington Bureau Chief um just an absolutely unbelievable week, once again, in the United States. And John Woodrow Cox, who is the foremost media expert, I think, when it comes to the impact of gun violence on children. And we went to the minutes on a very important topic. Uh, hopefully there's uh, conversations there that you'll be interested in and appreciate. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his help with this podcast. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.